0: Chapter 9, uh, starting in the middle of the chapter around verse 37. We've been going through the book of Luke this uh, this academic year. We started uh, in the late summer, and we're going to continue through this semester and wrap up in early summer. Luke is a long gospel, so that's why we end up having a lot on any given Sunday. This past week I was I listened to the radio when I'm driving into work, and this past week they had the induction into the Baseball Hall of Fame for this year, the, the class of 2016. And, and the two guys who got in this year were King Griffey Jr. and Mike Piazza, um, just two all-star uh, athletes. Uh, didn't care for Mike Piazza too much, mainly because he paid for the Mets, which played against the Braves, and things didn't always go that well uh, when they played. But this uh, Hall of Fame, and, I, and fame is one of those words that's kind of gotten uh, you know, distorted a little bit. In the idea when you have a hall of fame, the word fame is talking about a noteworthy achievement, that somebody's done something great. And both these players, by baseball standards, great players. There's, there's nothing you can hold against them on that front. But there's a difference between fame, this, this idea of an achievement, and being famous. And what we have in celebrities, people who are famous for really no reason other than they're famous... And, um, and usually, some of the things that they do that are noteworthy but not in good ways. Um, so, we have this idea of fame versus famous. And so, today we're going to be talking about greatness and, and, and what it means to be great. And when we look, talk about this, we want to ask ourselves do we truly want to be great or do we want people to regard us as being great? Because there's a big difference. So, where we are in the life and ministry of Jesus is we're about three years into His public ministry, and the, just the previous day, the transfiguration had occurred, this this big event that Mr. Chack talked about right before Christmas that occurred just the day before what we're going to talk about today. And looking forward, we're about three to six months before the crucifixion. So, we're, we're coming up toward the end of His public ministry. So, here we are in Luke chapter 9, starting in verse 37, and we'll read a few verses and Then talk about them. So starting in verse 37 of Luke chapter 9. On the next day, they came down from the mountain. A large crowd met him, and a man from the crowd shouted, saying, "'Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only boy.' And a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly screams, and it throws him into a convulsion with foaming at the mouth. And only with difficulty does it leave him, mauling him as it leaves.' I begged your disciples to cast it out, and they could not. And Jesus answered and said, You unbelieving and perverted generation, how long shall I be with you and put up with you? Bring your son here. While he was still approaching, the demon slammed him to the ground and threw him into a convulsion. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And they were all amazed at the greatness of God. But while everyone was marveling at all that he was doing, He said to his disciples, Let these words sink into your ears, for the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand this statement, and it was concealed from them so they would not perceive it, and they were afraid to ask him about this statement. Let's pray together. Lord, our world gives us this ambition to want to be great. But Lord, your standard of greatness and what this world says are, are often at odds with each other. Lord, as we look at this passage today, help us to understand the greatness of Jesus. Lord, help us to understand what it means to be great in your kingdom. And we pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. So we, this first section here, I, I think, really talks about the greatness of God. You know, we had just had the transfiguration the day before. He had been healing people. He had been casting out demons. And they, they bring this boy to him. And they had, his disciples had tried to cast out this demon, but they couldn't. And Jesus' response to them is pretty harsh. He says, you unbelieving and perverted generation, how long shall I be with you and put up with you? Now, it's hard to know when we're reading this text exactly what the tone is, but it is understandably harsh. It's hard to say those words in a nice way. Um, and this may kind of rub against the picture of Jesus that we often have as this big cuddly guy and, you know, um, you know just we, we talk about God is love and all these things and all those things are true. And so it's hard for us to see and hear these words coming out of the mouth of Jesus. But he, but he said them. But we have to remember that the same Jesus that welcomed little children to him also was the one who turned over the tables in the temple. And the same Jesus that cried over the death of Lazarus, his his friend, also walked through a mob of people that wanted to kill him. So this was not a wimp of a man by any standard. He was a complete, confident, and masculine man. We'd call him a man's man in the very best sense of the phrase. But his disciples were in, unable to cast out this demon, and it was, and we see in Mark, uh, Matthew seventeen, that it was because of their lack of faith and prayer. And if you can just, if we can imagine for a moment in the mind of Christ, the contrast that he must have dealt with every day that he walked this earth. Just the day before, it had this great moment on top of the mountain with Elijah and Moses. And But also he remembers back to what it was like to be in heaven before coming to earth. And you contrast that with his current scene where he was being rejected, where his, the people who were closest to him hadn't developed the kind of faith that they needed to do this. And, and I have to imagine that there was some continual sense of loss of what Jesus had to put away or put to the side to be able to do the ministry that he had been called to. And he knew that the cross was quickly approaching. In verse 44, he refers to himself as the Son of Man. This is one of the favorite titles that Jesus used of himself. It's used about 80 times in the New Testament. And you see here that he's warning his disciples that they had had this excitement over the transfiguration. They'd seen these miracles. But what he's telling them is don't get carried away with what you've seen. And he says that he would be delivered into the hands of men. This idea that he would be betrayed, he would be arrested, he'd go through a mockery of a trial, he would be beaten, and he would ultimately be crucified. Because there's still this idea in their head that they were going to have some type of temporal or uh, political uh, Messiah, this victory that they would have where basically they would kick out the Roman occupiers and they would have back Israel for themselves. But that's not what Jesus was here for at this time. He came as a suffering Savior and His kingdom was not a kingdom that would be openly visible in the same way that the Roman Empire was, but it was a subversive kingdom. It would one that would grow under that and would last much longer than the Roman Empire. In First 45, we see that they didn't understand this. They didn't understand the statement. And they probably wouldn't understand it until after the resurrection to after they had seen all these things happen and they would remember the statement and know that Jesus went through all of those things. He knew what was going to happen and He went through them willingly. And if they had understood, they might not have had the courage to stick around through it. So in some ways, maybe this protected them from knowing what was going to happen and gave them the courage to go through it. Let's continue reading, verse, starting in verse 46. Verse 46. It says, an argument started among them as to which of them might be the greatest. That sounds familiar. Uh, But Jesus, knowing what they were thinking in their heart, took a child and stood him by his side and said to them, whoever receives this child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For the one who is least among all of you, this is the one who is great. John answered and said, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to prevent him because he does not follow along with us. But Jesus said to him, Do not hinder him, for he who is not against you is for you. When the days were approaching for his ascension, he was determined to go to Jerusalem, and he sent messengers on ahead of him, and they went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make arrangements for him. But they did not receive him, because he was traveling toward Jerusalem. When his disciples James and John saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them and said, You do not know what kind of spirit you are of. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And they went on to another village. So we have three little scenes here right together. And probably in your Bible you might have a heading that says a test, the test of greatness. And we so we see these three little episodes. Let's look at them. Uh, start at the beginning, verse 46. It says, So an argument started among them as to which... Of them might be the greatest. This is not an abstract question. You know, in Matthew 18, it has the, the full verse says, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? So they're asking these questions. And we see even among the disciples, even among the 12 men who had been with Jesus for all these years and been worked right beside him, there were still rivalries and jealousies and even anger between them. You know, there, there's a question that appears in the other Gospels where uh, James and John, or, or their mother actually, comes to them, comes to Jesus and says, I want my sons to sit at your right and your left. Now, they, didn't, they had in their mind that Jesus was going to be a king, a political king, and that they wanted to be his right hand and his left hand man. They didn't know what they were asking for. But you see, even with that... Even among his closest people, you know, because you have Peter, James, and John who were really the inner circle of the uh, among the disciples. Even among them, there's all these wrong motivations. They wanted to be great in a temporal political kingdom. They wanted to ride his coattails into power. You see this a lot in political campaigns. People who are heavily involved in political pan campaigns with the idea that if my person gets elected, then I'm going to get a sweet position in the government. I'm going to have, you know... All, yeah, they am going to be staff, you know, uh, we, if you ever watch the West Wing or something like that. These people are involved during the campaign, and then when the person gets elected, then they get uh, a nice office in the White House and, and things like that. So maybe this is what they had in their mind, that they were going to ride with Jesus into this political power. But you know how I love a good object lesson. And half the time when I come up here, I have something to show you. I, I didn't today. Uh, i thought about grabbing one of the kids and putting the kids right here. But um, they, they have great stuff going on upstairs. So I didn't want to drag one of them from that. But I love a good object lesson. And Jesus is great at giving le- object lessons. And he gives this lesson in simplicity and humility, and that of a child. And he says, whoever receives this child... In my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For the one who is least among all of you, this is the one who is great. So we have this, alternate, this different view from God's perspective and from man's perspective. We don't see things the same way. If you remember in the Old Testament when, uh, when they were going to find the next king and they were looking through all the sons of Jesse, man's perception was one thing. But God's perception was quite another. They, God could see David for who he was, and knew that he was the right person. See, many cultures don't regard children as highly as we do. You know, we'll, if if there's a child in the middle of the road and a car is coming, almost any one of us will run out there and push that child out of the way and gladly be run over the, by a car to save that child. It's not the same standard in other countries. One of my one of the professors I work with is from Ghana. And he works with childhood nutrition, especially with infants. And one of the things he told me about in Ghana is that the children get the leftovers when it comes to food, that the adults are fed first, they get the best cuts of everything, and then whatever is left over is for the children. That means a lot of children are really malnourished. Their growth is stunted. And so one of the things that he does as part of his research is to help get better nutrition to the children in that country. But we see that the standard for children, how they're regarded, is very different in other places and throughout history than what it is in our country today. And so that's why Jesus is having this child, because the child in their culture is least. Their child, That child is... That's why they wanted to prevent children from coming to him in the first place. It's like, well, there's nothing really Jesus cares about the children. It's like, No, he cares about the children. And so Jesus says, in receiving a child who's considered the least... Is like receiving God Himself, who is the greatest. He turns things upside down. Now I'm not saying that a desire for greatness is wrong, but we have to make sure that we measure greatness by God's standard. And it's always a heart issue. It's not about the great achievements, it's about our heart. Let's continue on, start in verse 49. So the disciples have been embarrassed by their arguments between them of who is going to be greatest. And so John wants to change the subject pretty quickly and say, oh, but we saw this other guy. And so he, he's trying to change the subject and make himself look a little bit better. But even in this, he reveals more partisan narrowness and pride. This guy that they didn't know that was not part of their group, he was working in Jesus' name and in his power. Demons were being cast out in Jesus' name, but he wasn't a part of their group. And Jesus gives this statement in verse 50. And if you're not familiar with it, it may seem like a typo because our statement that we use in our culture is almost the exact opposite. Says in verse 50, he says, Do not hinder him, for he who is against you is for you. Now, for us, usually we think of it, we hear politicians and political leaders and military leaders say, If you're not with us, you're against us. That's not what Jesus says. He says almost the exact opposite. It's an inverse of that. It's a proverbial statement. And our modern one forces a choice a lot of times. It says, either you're going to be on my side or you're going to be against me. And what Jesus is saying is that no. He says, if you're not acting against this, then for all intents and purposes, you're a force. And the reason he says this is that someone who is acting in Jesus' name can't quickly contradict himself. Someone who is doing these miraculous acts in the name and power of Jesus is not going to turn around and then speak against Jesus, try to bring harm to Him. And we see this explained a little bit more in Mark chapter 9. But what Jesus didn't say was that the man was correct. He didn't say that the man was completely correct and everything like that. He wasn't offering an unequivocal endorsement of what this man was doing. But He was telling His disciples how they should act toward Him, how they should treat Him. You see, unity within the church doesn't come from shutting people down who disagree with you or shutting down those who serve differently than you or who are not a part of your particular church or your particular denomination or your particular movement. What Jesus is saying here is that we have to have a certain level of ministerial tolerance for people who serve and minister differently than we do. We shouldn't respond rashly or presume to act on Jesus' behalf without proper understanding. Because they had an assumption that they knew what Jesus would want them to do. So, oh, this guy is not part of us. We knew how to shut him down. He, he doesn't have the Jesus stamp of approval. He doesn't have a license to, to do this stuff. Uh, and that's, that's not what Jesus is saying. He says the exact opposite. They didn't understand Jesus as well as they thought they, they did. Let's continue on verse 51. And it says that the, when the days were approaching for his uh, for sorry, when the days were approaching for his ascension, he was determined to go to Jerusalem. This, uh, this word determined that it literally set his face or hardened his face. he wasn 't going to change his mind, he wasn 't going to turn. he was on his way to Jerusalem. Uh, that was his mission, and there was not going to be anything that would change his mind from that. And we see this word ascension. Um, Jerusalem sits on a plateau. So on the southern end of a plateau, it's surrounded by dry river riverbeds river and valleys, and often people make pilgrimages there for the different holidays, the feast of booths, the feast of tabernacle, or um, feast of uh, Passover, things like that. They would have these pilgrimages there, and even in the in the Psalms, you'll find that there's 15 psalms that are labeled songs of ascent that were typically sung as part of these pilgrimages because they're ascending up to the plateau to have these uh, holidays or to for these festivals. But Jesus was also aware that the time of His death and ultimately His ascension to heaven was drawing near. He knew what was coming. We we're only three to six months away from that. And it was common for the Jews during these pilgrimages and also just during their regular travels to go through Samaria. Samaritans had very similar religious beliefs. There were only a few points that they really differed on. And so the ideas of what's clean and what's unclean were very similar. So a Jew could go through there and with good expectation that something wouldn't happen that would make them ceremonially unclean and unable to participate. And remember that some three years before, Jesus had met this woman at a well in Samaria. And one of the questions that she asked was that, well, you know, you Jews say that we should worship at the temple in Jerusalem, and we Samaritans believe that we should worship at this mountain. What's correct? And and Jesus says, Well, I'm looking for people who will worship in spirit and truth. Uh, which so but you see, even then that debate was there. And by Jesus going through Samaria, through this particular village, on his way to Jerusalem to worship, he was in effect rejecting this mountain, Mount Gerizim, as the proper place of worship, which may have led to why they refused him to come through. They didn't want it would give it would give credence, it would be an insult to them. So Jesus accepts the insult, and then we go to verse fifty-four. And his disciples James and John, they said, "Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them?" And you're thinking, "Wow, that escalated quickly." (laughs) Um, To no, you can't come through our our neighborhood. Well, should we destroy them? Um, So we we see that there's a little bit of an overreaction here, but it's a little bit understandable because they were in this area of Samaria. And they just had this encounter the day before with, with Elijah. And it brought to mind probably to them what had happened in 2 Kings chapter 1 where the king of Samaria sent 50 guys out to Elijah to bring him to meeting. And Elijah says, if I'm a man of God, fire will come down from heaven and destroy you. And it did. And then they sent 50 more guys and then they got burned up. So we see this repeating event. So maybe James and John, who are known as the sons of thunder uh, by Jesus had this in mind. They were thinking about Elijah, they were in Samaria, and they said, these people have insulted Jesus, we're going to do what Elijah did. But the situation was very different. A very different situation. And they misapplied the example of, of a good man. In verse 55, Jesus says, you do not know what kind of spirit you are of. It was not a spirit of spiritual zeal, of wanting to stand up for our beliefs. It was one of anger and revenge. And we can see that the same action can be right or wrong depending on the situation. It was right for Elijah. It was not right for James and John at the situation. In verse 56, he says, For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. See, the, the, the current dispensation, the current period of time that Jesus was working in And that we're in now is a dispensation, a time of mercy, not of strict legality. There's grace. Jesus accepts the insult and He goes elsewhere. Everybody probably knows John 3.16. John 3.17 is a good one to remember too. because It says the Son of Man didn't come to destroy people, to judge people, but to save them. That's what Jesus was here for. Now, the day will come when He will come in judgment. But at this time, He's here for grace. He's here to save. Now, some of your, your Bibles may have a bit of a bracket around um, verses 55 and 56 or parts of them. Um, some, I think a few translations may not have those verses in there at all. Um, just This is kind of a side, but I just want to throw it in here. These verses appear in some manuscripts and not in others. Uh, We have tons of manuscripts of the New Testament. Uh, If you look in the Foundations uh, book, in the first chapter, I think it's on page 15, there's a chart of all these different ancient texts and how many old transcripts we have of them. The New Testament just blows them all away. We have far more uh, manuscripts, early manuscripts of the New Testament than we do any other uh, ancient book. And the thing is, is that sometimes between those manuscripts, there are some discrepancies... There are very, very few discrepancies between the different manuscripts. But since we have so many, we know where those discrepancies are, and we can evaluate them. The words that we have here are completely consistent with the words of Jesus, and so we can trust that what we have is accurate here. Even if There's very few of those that have any major uh, theological implications. You can look in the Foundations book. We have a little more information about it. So don't freak out if you're reading through and said, well, those verses aren't in my Bible because some, some translations take them out. All right, let's keep going here. Verse 57. So we've talked about the greatness of God and we've had this test of greatness. And now we get to this demanding, this exacting discipleship, what it means to follow Jesus. Let's start reading in verse 57. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said, The foxes have holes, and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And he said to another, Follow me. But he said, Lord, permit me to first to go and bury my father. But he said to him, Allow the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim everywhere the kingdom of God. Another also said, I will follow you, Lord, but first permit me to say goodbye to those at home. But Jesus said to him, No one, after putting his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. So we have these three, these three men who come to Jesus. The first one was a scribe, which we learned from Matthew 8. Now, we don't have that Jesus specifically called him. He, he volunteered. He was likely a part of the crowd or on the disciples that were around him. But he volunteered to follow Jesus in this way. So we have to ask ourselves, well, what was his motive? It could have been that he was just caught up in the excitement, that there were a lot of things going on. And he's like, Lord, I'm going to follow you. you know, That he, he wanted to do that. He may, he may have had this fear of missing out of what was going to happen. But he was misguided, And just as we've seen in these previous situations. Jesus tells him that the Son of Man has no place to lay his head see, Jesus was effectively homeless during His ministry. He depended on others for His shelter, for His food. It was not a comfortable life. You know, we all think about how great travel is, and travel is fun. But we're usually staying in hotels or someone's house or something like that. We're driving in a car, flying in an airplane. When Jesus traveled, He typically walked everywhere. It was hot, it was dusty. Um, he never, he, he you know, maybe had a bag of stuff to His name At most. So he was really quite poor. And his reply to this scribe shows the scribe's motive that maybe he was looking to be on the inner circle of this new kingdom that was coming. But he also pointed to what his hindrance would be because this guy was probably used to a fairly comfortable life, and following Jesus was not going to be a comfortable life. He was impulsive and he didn't count the cost of following Jesus. And Jesus knew that this guy's enthusiasm wouldn't hold up when things got tough. You know, emotion and enthusiasm can only take you so far. You see, the lowest creatures of earth were richer than Jesus in this regard. The foxes had a place. The birds had a place. But Jesus didn't. There were no... going to be no earthly grandeur or wealth at this point in the kingdom. 2 Corinthians 8, 9 says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sake He became poor, so that you through His poverty might become rich. And we see that in this passage here. The second guy, Jesus does call him. But the guy says, But... You know, he kind of throws up yeah, I'll do it, but he says he needs to bury his father. And the father may have still been alive, but maybe very frail in, the last, in his last days, but most likely he was recently deceased. And so he's, what Jesus is calling him to here is not, I don't think, salvation, because he was already a disciple. He was already following Jesus. But it was a call to ministry. It was called to follow Jesus and be with him throughout the work that he was doing. It meant to literally follow Jesus at that moment in the same way that the early disciples did where they dropped their nets, where they got up from their table and followed Jesus at that moment. That's what the call is. And it's not that burial is a bad thing. Burial was actually a sacred duty. The Jewish law allowed certain exemptions from religious practices to allow you to bury someone. So... It's not that, they're, that burying someone is wrong or offering somebody that respect. But it was, so these are two good duties, to follow Jesus and to care for your father. But they were conflicting duties. And so when we have these two good things that conflict, we have to come up with an order of priority. And if any of you, those of you who know what I've been through the past five years with my parents and step-parents, you know that I can sympathize with what this guy is facing. Because the, many times, the number of times I've had to drop what I was doing and care for a family member over the past few years, uh, you know, even burying two of my step-parents over the past few years, I can sympathize with this guy. And knowing that there are things that I want to do, that I feel God has called me to do, but there's these other things that I also have to take care of. We're supposed, when we follow Jesus, we have to die to ourselves. And the way one writer put it it says he was worried about someone else's funeral when he should have been planning his own. Jesus says to let allow the dead to bury their own dead. This is a harsh statement, another one of these harsh statements that we hear here. But what he's saying is let let the spiritually dead bury the physically dead. Because you're alive. As a follower of Jesus, you are alive. Let the spiritually dead take care of that. Your work is more important. Now, following God is not a renunciation of family duties. Don't don't misunderstand that. Just say, well, I'm following God. I don't have to care about my family anymore. That's not what he's saying. Jesus even uh, corrected people on that because people some of the people at the time would say they would have parents who may have been in need and they said, well, mom, dad, I would help you but what I would use to help you, I've already dedicated to God and so I can't really help you. They were using that as a way to hold on to their stuff instead of taking care of their parents the way that they were supposed to. And Jesus corrects them on that because it showed that their hearts were not right. So so following God doesn't mean you don't care about your family. You don't do things to care for them. But... You can't use your family responsibilities as an excuse not to follow Jesus. You just can't do it. Allegiance to Christ is higher than anything or anyone else. This last guy, another also said, I will follow you, Lord, but first permit me to say goodbye to those at home. But Jesus said to him, no one after putting his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. You may think, well, what's the big deal? He just wants to say goodbye to his family before he leaves, knowing that he probably won't be back for a while. But but really the idea is that he would be going home to set things in order for his departure, that he was going to be away for a while. And this is another guy who wasn't specifically called like the, the one just previous was, but he volunteered to follow Jesus. And the idea is that if he goes back home, if he's made this decision and then he goes back home and tries to say goodbye, take care of things, settle there, the temptation is going to say, well, let me do this, then I'll follow Jesus tomorrow. Or or I got a few more things, I'll follow Jesus next week. And then eventually you don't follow Jesus at all. And maybe that was what Jesus was warning him about. Jesus Jesus gives this old... um, Agricultural pro- proverb, it says, No one, after putting his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. It's, it's, you know, nowadays, we have huge tractors that plow like 20 or 30 rows at a time, You know, big mechanical things that cost thousands and millions of dollars. Uh, up until recently, fairly recently, that was not the case. The idea was that you would have a plow. My mom actually has one in her front yard as a decorative piece because we don't really use them anymore. But it's basically two arms that come up, almost like bicycle handles, and they come down, they're wooden, they come down, and then at the bottom is this uh, blade that digs into the ground. It's sharp, it'll go in there. And then you have usually two animals that would be pulling this, or later on you'd maybe add a tractor or something. But you would have to, the animals would provide the force, would pull that that blade through the dirt to break it up. But the person had to steer it, and it was not an easy job. I mean, because you have two... 3,000-pound animals that are pulling this blade in the dirt, and you're steering it. And obviously, you want to make sure that your rows are straight so that you're the most efficient with the land that you have, that things are where they're supposed to be. But if you're doing this, and you're you're looking ahead at what you're aiming at to keep your rows straight, you've got these two huge animals up there pulling, and you start looking around, all of a sudden, your rows end up going all over the place. And you say, well, that doesn't make much sense. How many of you look at your phone while you're driving and then wake up and you're like hit on the rumble strips or in the other lane or something like that. Yeah. Like, you know, it's shaking you because you've run off the road. I, I've i done it. I really try hard not to look at my phone, but people do it all the time. They sit at red lights when they turn green. It's easy to get distracted. So don't do that folks. Just don't. I don't want to have to come to the hospital to visit any of you because you had a wreck looking at your phone. Um, so if you have this person who's looking around, looking back, especially looking back, you think you're still going straight, but you're not. You're off over here somewhere, and it can happen so quickly. So we have in this guy a divided mind. And it's kind of like Lot's wife back in Genesis 19. When they were leaving the city that God was destroying, and they said, don't look back, don't look back. And what does she do? She looks back. Now, it's not that she wanted to go back there because she saw what was happening, but it was a reluctance to leave those things that are before that, that we've had before that God has told us to, to break with. If we're looking back on the regular ambitions of this world, it can distract us. We can't serve the kingdom of God and keep up the ambitions of this world. It's no wonder that Jesus would soon say, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. It's hard. We've had some pretty challenging words from Jesus in this passage. And if we're honest, part of us enjoys hearing those challenging things because we feel like, man, church just punched me in the gut this morning and I feel like, you know, I feel these things. We like the tough talk. But it doesn't actually mean we're going to do it. We're gonna we're gonna feel good about what happened here, and then and then we're gonna go, as uh, as Ed Stetzer wrote, we need to let all this hard teaching we hear not just go into one ear, but go out through both feet. See, the temptation as a speaker and for us now is to to take the edge off, to soften this up a little bit to lessen the cost of what it means to follow Jesus. Now, the challenges were certainly heightened during the earthly, earthly ministry of Jesus. The stakes were high. But the truth of the matter is still the same. Now we, Last semester, we talked about our strategic planning and our vision, what we ended with, what we said. The thing that we're looking for is to have a church that is striving to say yes to Jesus at any cost. When we say that, we have to realize that it may cost a lot. It may cost a lot. And it's hard for us to be willing to pay that cost. But that's what Jesus is calling calling us to. Your salvation can be secure, and maybe you're just happy with that. But what's the next thing? What do you do when Jesus comes to you and says, follow me, I've got this for you? Let's pray together. Lord, following you, becoming your child is so easy because you did all the work. There's nothing we can do to earn it. There's nothing we can do to make you love us more you you paid the price for us and lord we are so thankful for that there's nothing we can do to make it up to you but lord we know that following you doesn't stop there that these people who were following the crowd a lot of times their motives were wrong and you cut through that a lot of times they had wrong ideas of what it meant what your kingdom would look like. But Lord, you you ask some of them to follow you even beyond that, to follow you in your day-to-day life of ministering to people, of of preaching the gospel, of healing people, even in these last months before you would be handed over to men. Lord, we know that here some 2,000 years later things may look a lot different. But the truth of the matter is that we're pretty comfortable. And that I don't know if I would follow you if you asked me to follow you in the same way that these guys, that you asked them. Lord, I pray that we would respond to whatever it is that you call us to. Whatever it is, help us to be obedient, knowing that we may never be great in the world's eyes. We may never have a book deal. We may never have a large crowd of people to hear us speak. We, we may never have lots of money in a big house and, or even the acclaim of people. We may never make it into, into, into any hall of fame on this earth. But Lord, we pray that we be found faithful in what you call us to do, whatever that may be. Lord, as we come to this time where we remember you, we remember Jesus, who, who was truly great as a man, the Son of God, who paid the price for us. May we remember Him with reverence and with joy and with thankfulness as we break the bread that symbolizes His body that was broken for us. And as we drink the cup that represents His blood that was spilled for us. The Lord, He held nothing back.